Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is God's Grafting by Pastor Sean Wood. We're going to come around God's Word. Can we, can we pray as we open God's Word? Father, we thank you for your extraordinary love for us. We meet, Lord God, and we're, we're happy to be meeting. Lord, as we open your word today, I pray that you'd open our hearts and unclog our spiritual ears. Holy Spirit, we ask for ears to hear what you have to say to us today. In the wonderful and glorious name of Jesus, amen. If you've got your Bibles, you'd like to meet me in Romans chapter 11, we will kind of finish off the parentheses or the brackets that Paul has in the book of Romans. I deeply appreciate our communion. Thank you, Rob. And I appreciate that song, Reckless Love. Now, when that song, Reckless Love, first came out, uh, it, it was met with some controversy. Uh, when it first came out, uh, I was one of the first ones to start pulling apart the wording because a lot of people were, oh, God's not reckless. And it depends on your interpretation of reckless. Uh, I was pleased to learn that the person who wrote the song, Reckless Love, wasn't aiming it as a flippant throw it everywhere kind of a love. That's not what he meant. In fact, uh, reckless as in abandonment to self. God is very reckless and very risky in his love. However, the Bible strongly teaches and the book of Romans strongly teaches and the last three chapters we've been looking at strongly teach a very important truth. God's love is not misguided. It is not flippant. It is direct. It is deliberate. And it is individual. We're going to finish off the three chapters of Romans 9, 10 and 11. And if you've been able to stick through these chapters, a lot of people get to this part in Romans and they jump from chapter 8 to chapter 12 because they can't seem to make sense. One of the hardest chapters is chapter 11, which is what we're going to look at today. A lot of people look at Romans chapter 11 and think, how on earth could this apply to us? Well, I'm glad you asked those questions. What brings us to this point? It's very important that we kind of uh, ask ourselves that question. The last verse of chapter 10, it says, verse 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Verse 20 uh, is a recording of a prophecy from Isaiah where he says, I have been found by those who did not seek me and I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. That's a very profound verse, that. But that is speaking about the Gentiles. That's speaking about a time when God's covenant relationship would spill out of Israel to a very, very powerful word we looked at last week, to everybody. I love the word everybody because what we learned for those that tuned in uh, to last week's message, what we learned was that for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. And I love that word because everyone excludes nobody. Which is why I struggle with some of the teachings from Calvinism. There is no exclusion in that word, everybody. Jesus didn't die for some, Jesus didn't die for the elite. Jesus didn't die for a select few that he decided. No, no, no. Jesus died for every single person. And anybody who would like to respond, and Romans chapter 10 puts it right back in the lap of Israel and says, your problem is you didn't respond. Because there's questions that arise because this salvation is sweeping through the Gentiles. 
But Israel has rejected it. I think there is a message, an absolute powerful message for the church today, because that verse 21 that says, to Israel all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Well, let's have a paraphrasing look at the history of Israel. I'm going to talk about a man today, briefly, very briefly, from the Old Testament called Elijah. And often when we uh, think about the uh, confrontation on Mount Carmel, we think that that was God showing his power to unbelievers. <laughs> no, it wasn't. In fact, what Elijah said was, go and get all the prophets of Baal up here, but go and get all of Israel. Assemble all the people of Israel. And uh, just before everything takes place on Mount Carmel, uh, Elijah says an enormously powerful verse. He says, Israel, if God is God, then stop limping between two opinions. That's what he says. Beautiful in the Hebrew. But the picture of what Elijah is trying to communicate is this. He says, stop dancing with everybody else because God is waiting for you on the dance floor. A wayward people. See, what Elijah was saying to Israel was, There's a dance floor here and you're dancing with anything. You're dancing with anyone that comes on the dance floor and God is there holding out his hands of love to you. By the time we reach the prophecies in Jeremiah, we reach a people who on the outside, everything looked fine. We were offering sacrifices on the steps of the temple. Everything was in order. The, the priests were wearing the right robes. Everything was in order. But, but behind the curtain, there was no presence of God. Why? Because it was full of idols. And Jeremiah, at the age of 12, stands up to the king and says, when the curtain's peeled back, it's full of idols. I don't know what you were doing at 12, but I wasn't shouting anything out to the king. Not even to my parents. You couldn't negotiate with them. And I wonder how much of that actually describes our own history. Often we look at the Old Testament. Often we read about Israel and we think, oh yeah, old Israel, always mucking up, always leaving God, always stumbling over and God's always got to bring them back. I wonder how much of that applies to us today. When I read that passage, when I read that verse, I've got to be honest, I said, Lord, this this is my history. So often, Lord, I've danced with so many other things in my life. So many times you've held out your hands of love to bring me back. And what we arrive at is a place where the gospel has gone forth. Israel has rejected, or the Jews have rejected largely the gospel. And now everybody is saying God has brushed Israel aside. Very important part now. God has brushed Israel aside in a... God's all about the Gentiles now. All the promises to Israel, God's forgotten those. All of his word to Israel, God's just let it all go. And Paul wants to know, and wants everybody else to know, that's not the case. And we hit a very beautiful truth called the remnant. And if we can put the book of Revelation down for a minute, and if we can just have a look at what God's purpose in the remnant was, it's a very beautiful truth. What we're going to see is that as we work our way through this chapter, we're going to see that Israel's rejection of the gospel, the Gentiles accepting the gospel, all of that happening all at the same time was the wonderful hand of God working in everybody's heart all at the one time. 
Let's have a look at how Paul describes it. Verse 1 of chapter 11, and for those that think, you know what, when I look over the history of Israel, I'm a lot like that, God. I, I keep making mistakes. I keep stumbling. I keep telling you how many of us in this room have promised God a million times we'd never do it again, and then we muck up. How many times have we stumbled and thought, God, surely you've just forgotten about me. Surely you'll move on to somebody else. Surely, Lord God, you'll just cast me aside. Well, if that's you this morning, I'm glad you tuned in. Verse 1, Paul wants to know, I ask then, has God rejected his people? This verse is enormously important because it weaves its way all the way through the chapter of chapter 11. And uh, you know that saying that talking to yourself is one thing, but answering yourself is the first line of madness? Well, Paul was bonkers, if that's the case, because he asks himself questions and then he answers them. I ask, has God rejected his people? By no means. Well, hang on a second. The word's been getting around, Paul. God's moved on. God's found a new people. He's forgotten about Israel. And Paul says, God hasn't rejected Israel. God hasn't set them aside. No, 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 no. In fact, what Paul says is, I'm going to give you evidence that he hasn't. Two major evidences that Paul gives. Number one, he says, for I myself am an Israelite. What's Paul saying? Stop the bus. I'm an Israelite. I'm a Jew. I'm a Pharisee. Or I was. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No, no, no. Paul makes it absolutely clear. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. If you want to unpack that word foreknowledge, you've got to rewind to the messages in chapter 9. He goes on and says, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? Now, Elijah was a bit of a sook. If you read the history of Elijah, when things didn't go Elijah's way, he had a bit of a sook. And this is one of those moments when he has a bit of a sook. I don't know whether it's a prophetic thing or not, Robin. I don't, I'm just reading scripture. You can interpret. No, I'm joking. <clears throat> but he says, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. What's Elijah saying? God, I'm the only one left. Uh, nobody's following you. Nobody's looking for you. Nobody wants to be in relationship with you. And when they kill me, that's it. And for those that know the story of Elijah, you will know. But what is God's reply to him? God's reply is, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, says Paul, there is a remnant. The word remnant means those left over. In an apostate interesting word, but in an apostate Israel, what God wants everybody to know is there are some that have not walked away. And what Paul wants everybody to know is the fact that God has kept for himself a remnant means that he hasn't forgotten or rejected Israel at all. God has a plan. God has a purpose. Verse 5, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. By grace. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And so we now arrive at what Paul would like to describe as the present condition of Israel. And the present condition of Israel at the time that Paul is writing to Romans or Rome is Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. And what was it seeking? Righteousness. 
How many, how many people here, uh, for those that are working their way through Rock Reflections, we're about to do the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, which covers the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, it says, for those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. So I'll let you read it. But basically, that word righteousness is a positional word. It speaks not about the acts that you do. It speaks about standing before God in the completed work of Christ. It's about your standing before God. If I have a righteous relationship with Terry, and brother, you're going to have to back me up here. If I have a righteous relationship with Terry, then there is nothing between us. Amen, brother. Amen. Oh, think, yeah, all right. I was just, just sort of a bit of double check. Yeah. <laughs> and so what righteousness means, Israel was trying to get to the point with a relationship with God where we stand before God and there's nothing between us. And Paul says they missed out because they tried to do it in their own strength, in their own steam, and the Gentiles are rushing into the kingdom of God. Why? Because they grabbed hold of Jesus by faith. Listen, if you were a Gentile in the first century, if you were a tax collector or a sinner or a prostitute, this is enormously good news. Heaven will be full of prostitutes, tax collectors, and downright scoundrel sinners, and hell will be filled of Pharisees. But the elect obtained it, those that had a relationship with God based on his grace. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And for those that tuned in through chapters 9 and a little bit of 10, hardening is God releasing his hand. That's all that means. It means, okay, you want to do your own thing. You want to have life your way. You think you've got everything under control. Okay, well, I'll relax my hand and let's see how you go on your own for a little while. That's what hardening looks like. I can testify to moments in my life where God's gone, you know what, you think you're all that, Sean? I'm going to take my hand away for a moment. We'll see how good you are on your own. God has a way of teaching us a very important lesson, that we are enormously insufficient, but also that Jesus is all-sufficient. And so we read that the present condition is that the elected had obtained it, but there were some that were hardened. And as it is written, God gave them over. So what is going on here? I've got some enormously good news for everybody because the news is if you're in a position where you think God's got no more grace left for you, then the message to Israel is the same that is the message to you today. God hasn't rejected you and God hasn't pushed you aside and God hasn't passed you over. And for some of us sitting in this room, that could be enormously good news. I know it is for me. I know pastors don't make mistakes, but we're all shocked when we learn that they do. But what's God doing here? Verse 11 of chapter 11, I want to pick it up here because Paul starts to unpack a little bit of what God's doing here. So I ask, he says, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Oh, the riches of the love of God. They should have, you know. God had every reason to do away with Israel. But did they stumble in order that they might fall? Paul says, by no means. By no means. No, he says, rather, through their trespass, 
here's where it gets a little bit interesting. When I was reading this, I'm thinking, Paul, what are you trying to tell us here? Number one, there's a couple of things going on here. Number one, by no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. What Paul is saying is, because the Jews rejected the gospel largely, the Gentiles were rushing into the kingdom. I'm thinking, what is going on here? And then I thought about it. I think if you read the book of Acts, here's how the pattern works. The apostles would take the gospel to a new town. When they arrived in a new town, the first thing they would do is they would go to the synagogue and they would preach the gospel to the Jews in that city. And here's a regular pattern. You can read it over and over in the book of Acts. And the minute they walked into the synagogue and they preached the gospel to the Jews, they were met with uh, adamant resistance and persecution and they would go out of the synagogues and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles would be rushing into the kingdom and everybody thinks Israel's been done away with. Everybody thinks this is, this is God doing away with Israel, but God's doing an enormous work in Israel. And we're going to get to the truth of what he's doing in a moment. But at the same time that God, that the Gentiles are rushing in, he's doing a work in the Jews. We'll get to that in a moment. But imagine for a moment that they had gone into those cities, gone into the synagogue, preached the gospel, the Jews grabbed hold of the gospel with, with passion and, and zeal, and, and they all accept the gospel. What happens? Everybody's going to think, well, this is just a move, this is just a revival amongst Israel. But instead, it spills out to the Gentiles. But before you think God has done away with Israel, before you think God's forgotten about Israel, uh, uh, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make the Israelites jealous. What we do see that happens increasingly is that the more the Gentiles grab hold of the gospel, the Jews are standing there going, we've missed the bus. Have a look at what's happening here. Uh, more and more Gentiles are saved. They're rushing into the kingdom. And if you think that it's all pomp and ceremony and it's all fluff, the Holy Spirit, for those that are into the Holy Spirit, zapped them, whacked them, flapped them. These guys were getting hit with the power of the Holy Spirit everywhere and Israel were becoming jealous. And what God is doing both at the same time is Gentiles are rushing into his kingdom, but he's doing an enormous work in the heart of a hard, hard Israel. And they are flocking into the kingdom. By the time we get to almost 70 AD, the Jews are beginning to flock into the kingdom. The Judaism is still alive today. There are, there are those in Israel that are still waiting for the Messiah. I get all that. But largely, they have come in. Listen to the words of Paul. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, grab hold of this. And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Oh, the riches of the knowledge of God. Paul goes on, he says, Now I am speaking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Verse 14, In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. God's doing a salvation work 
amongst the Jews, both at the same time. Verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Press the pause button for a moment because I want to get to the crux of what Paul wants to say in, in number 11. It's an important, beautiful metaphor that he uses when he speaks about grafting. When we read scripture, interpreting scripture involves that we do two things. First one is we need to understand that when the Bible was written, it was not written to you. Number one, and that's important because when Paul was writing the letter to the Romans, bear with me before you get your tomatoes out, he wasn't writing it to the Rock Church 2,000 years in advance. He was writing to it, but he, although it wasn't written to us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it was written for us. And number two, when we read, we have to kind of sit alongside Paul, in a sense, and we kind of have to look over his shoulder and try and understand who he's writing to, why he's writing to them, and what he's trying to convey. And in the first century... Words that we overlook very quickly, like grafting, we can miss the beautiful truth that Paul's trying to unpack. Verse 17 begins with but, which means there's a contrast now. But if some of the branches were broken off, speaking of Israel, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in, among the others and now share in the nourishing root. And what we see is, if you read the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah, often you will hear terminology that speaks about a tree. Yes, vines as well, but but better tree. And what we find that God does in Abraham is he takes a man and he plants a tree. Yes, there's lots of other wild trees, but he plants one tree in the person of Abraham. Over some time, that tree forms branches. Jacob, Isaac, 12 tribes, Israel, and it grows and it grows and it grows. And what we find is that Israel are the cultivated tree that God cultivates. He cares for, he keeps, he prunes. But then you get to Isaiah and Jeremiah and God says he's going to do something really radical. He's going to grab an axe and he's going to cut that tree down. And from the stump, you might read prophecies like, I'm going to lay the axe to the root of Jesse, speaking about Israel. And he says, and from that stump, there will be a righteous shoot. And God says, I'm going to make another tree. This time it's not coming from Abraham. This time it's coming from Jesus. Same deal though. This tree is going to have many, 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 many branches. In fact, Any branch that wants to join, can join. But God still cultivates that tree. God's still doing a work on that tree. And for those that understand horticulture a little bit, I remember when I was uh, back at a place overseas called Tasmania. And for those that watch the Kekovich ad with the five people, and this is all of us, that's probably about right. I I, I appreciated that ad. Uh, I don't, I don't eat lamb much, but I appreciated the ad. 
But anyway, when I was in Tasmania, we had a, a wonderful gentleman that was a doctor, and he had a prolific garden. And he, every time he'd go away for a long time, he'd say, listen, I need you to come and mow the lawn to look after the garden. And right next door, he had a beautiful uh, Dutch man by the name of uh, Korn, I think his name was. And his wife's name was Bayer. Beautiful people. And both of them had an orchard. And I can remember I'm mowing the lawn one day and, and I stopped and picked a pear off one of John's trees. It's a beautiful pear. John, you have outdone yourself. And I'm eating this pear and I hear this voice over the fence. Hello. And he's corn. And he says, if you want to taste some real fruit. <laughs> no pride at all. A very humble man. If he said, if you want to taste some real fruit, come in for a walk through my orchard. I was astounded. I thought I knew a little bit about horticulture, and trust me, I only know a little bit. I thought I knew a little bit about horticulture, but when I walked through his orchard, I saw apple trees with four different kinds of apples on the one tree. I said, Corn, how did you do that? And he said, well, when it's a very small tree, he says, I take a graft from this tree, and I put it on, and he said, then it gets a little bit bigger, and I put another graft in. And he says, I cultivate... And I graft that tree, and now I have four different kinds of apples on the one tree. And I said, but you've done something enormously bad, corn. I said, I'm male. I can't choose as it is. <laughs> they were good apples. I had all four. <laughs> and uh, a beautiful man passed away from uh, Alzheimer's after some time. But uh, I had a, it was a pleasure to work in his garden. I learned so much from just... Listening to a man that was losing his short-term memory could tell you some beautiful stuff about horticulture. So um, God, God rest his soul. But when it comes to grafting, in the first century, everybody reading this, look, if we're looking over the shoulder of Paul, everybody reading this would have known exactly what Paul meant. You see, if you had a, and there were many olive groves in the first century in the Middle East, if you had an olive tree that was alive but dormant, then you would do something very radical. What you would do is you would begin to break branches off that olive tree and you would take a wild shoot that was growing somewhere and you would graft it into where that was broken off. And two very amazing and profound things happen both at the same time. That branch that you graft in will suck all the nutrients out of the tree and bear enormous fruit. But what happens is the minute you break a branch off and you graft in another one, it stimulates the dormant tree to begin releasing nutrients, creating sap so that it can mend the wound and adopt the new graft. And what God is doing, beautifully doing by grafting in the Gentiles, both at the same time, is he's grafting everybody into the cultivated tree that is supported by the root, Jesus Christ, our wonderful Lord and Saviour. But at the same time, he's waking up a sleeping Israel. Beautiful, profound truth that God is unpacking. And God is doing that today. I, I know... Uh, when I look across the landscape of COVID, I don't have all the answers either, but I know this. If you have a look at what's happening to the church, if you have a look at what's happening outside the church, God is doing an amazing work on both of those landscapes all at the same time. I'm having conversations with non-believers now that are easy. Once upon a time, you used to have to, you know, it took a long time to get to a conversation about God. Now you're there in five seconds. 
Something's been awoken inside those who are non-believers. And amongst the church, I've seen in a beautiful work, it's uncomfortable getting broken off and grafted in. It can be uncomfortable. But God is waking up his church. And for those that love the teachings of hyper-grace, you know, do what you want, God will forgive you. God's love is endless. His grace is limitless. Yes, but if that's you this morning, I want you to read these verses because Paul has a warning for the Gentiles. If there is anything, you know that old saying that uh, if we don't learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. We've got some lessons to learn from Israel. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root, Jesus, of the olive tree, do not be arrogant. You know, when God, here's a lesson just as a digression. When God pours out his favour on you, on your church, on your nation, don't be arrogant. Don't look down on the others. There's there's something that we must do. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. That's Jesus. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Paul says that is true, but they were broken off because of their unbelief. You notice what Paul doesn't say there. This is what I like. Paul quite often is more profound than what he doesn't say. Paul doesn't say they were broken off because they committed this sin or they committed that sin or they ate the wrong thing or they did the wrong thing or they didn't wear the right clothes. No, no, Paul didn't say any of that. They were broken off because of their unbelief. And for those that tuned in last week, belief is more than what you agree with in your mind. The, the, the Bible uses the word believe completely differently. It's a verb that speaks about the complete direction of your life. They were broken off because of their unbelief. Paul goes on and says, but you stand fast or you remain grafted through faith. You see, believing in Christ is not a one-time action. surrendering to Christ, I don't know about anybody else, but I've got to do it nearly every day. Every day I feel like I've got to come to Jesus and surrender to him afresh because I'm prone to trying to do everything in my own power, prone to... If you're not a control freak here today, if the family's sitting down watching television and you have to have the remote, you might be a control freak. I know control freaks are only pastors, but I didn't hear any amens. That was, that was encouraging. <laughs> but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud. The Bible says that God, in Proverbs 16, says God will tear down the house of the proud. God's number one enemy is the pride in your heart. Why? Because every sin flows from that. So do not be proud, but fear. Reverentially, humbly, 
Keep yourself at the foot of the cross. What does that look like? Humility, please hear me this morning. If I haven't said this before, please hear me this morning. Humility is not devaluing yourself or making less of yourself. Don't you dare do that. God created you and made you the way you are. You're beautiful just as you are. Don't, you don't have to go and remake yourself. Humility isn't walking around telling everybody how bad you are and how naughty you are or anything like that. No, no, no. Humility is adopting a posture of life that makes much about God. That's humility. Humility walks around boasting in Christ. Paul, one of the proudest men you'll read of in Scripture, God did a number on him, by the way. When God says, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my now, you know what follows is not going to be pleasant. But a proud man that can say, my boasting now, I don't boast in anything apart from Christ. Because Paul says, without Christ, I'm weak. Without Christ, I'm insufficient. Without Christ, I am still in my sins. But fear, verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Verse 22 in the ESV starts with the word note. And what Paul is asking us to do is to stop and reflect on what he's about to say. Reflect then, or note then, the kindness and the severity of God. And too much today, I honestly feel that too much today, the focus is on the kindness of God. We won't talk about the severity. My job as pastor is to help you to die well, as morbid as that sounds. My job as pastor, my number one job is every single person that I possibly can, I want to help you to die well. But I can't do that unless I can help you to live well. And Paul, when he was talking to the Corinthians, and he's talking about, they were a kind of church, by the way. Uh, when he's talking to the Corinthians, he's talking about how they conducted their lives and their manner of their lives and coming to the end of their lives when they stand before God. And he says, everything of this world is like chaff. Our lives will be subjected to fire. And he says, what is burnt up will be considered a loss. But what remains, gold, you will take with you. First boss I ever had was almost 80 when I started working for him was close to 90 by the time I finished and was still working over 40 hours a week when I, was, when I left. He was, for a long time, the only man, Ken, wherever you are, he was the only man that... He was the radiator shop in Tasmania for many, many years. He had multiple bank accounts. He was a very wealthy man. He had property all over Launceston, that place across the sea. But when he died... He taught me an enormously valuable lesson. He worked hard all his life. He had property all over. But when he stands before God, he'll lose every one of it, every bit of it. Every dollar that's in the bank, every house that he owns, every car. He had a Daimler Jag that he used to roll up in. It was was a nice car. But man, he hit some gutters and trashed it by the time he'd finished with it. He He was blind in one eye and couldn't see out the other, but... But all the cars that he had, all the money that he had, the property he had, he had the best place in the middle of town where the workshop was. And now if you go to Tasmania and you walk the streets of Launceston and you say Trevor Iken, they'll go, 
He didn't take any of it with him. And Paul says, whatever you invest into the kingdom of God, whatever you allow God to invest into you, what did Jesus say to Laodicea? I counsel you to buy of me gold refined in the fire so that when you stand before him and when the fire is applied to your life, you don't see any U-Haul trucks at a funeral. Note the kindness and the severity of God. The severity is that we will stand before God and we will give an account of the life that we have lived. We will give an account of what he has deposited into us. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Paul didn't mince words. Verse 23, and even they, if they do not continue, this is, we're talking about Israel now, you think God's forgotten about Israel? And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. As we come to a close, thank you, Maria and worship team. We're going to sing before we go home. I want to read the final words of Romans chapter 11, because I could not find any better way to finish this chapter. Next week, we begin our journey through Romans chapter 12, and I'm enormously excited because it's going to take, it's going to take probably a month to get through the first two verses. But then Paul goes from a philosophical response to a practical one. What does it look like in our daily lives to respond to the message of the gospel? So I'm enormously excited for all of that. But as he finishes, listen to this. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. If you're sitting here this morning thinking to yourself, what do I have to do to respond to God's awesome love? Well, tune in for Romans chapter 12. This morning, due to current circumstances, we're not going to open up the front, but can we stand together? And can we pray in God's presence together? And if you... If you're sitting here this morning and any part of this morning has spoken to you, then I encourage you to reach out to God right where you are. Let us pray together this morning. Father, I thank you that you've grafted us in. How beautifully profound that truth is, that you would graft us in. Lord, we want to be the remnant. No matter who walks away from you, no matter how much the world thinks that the church is an old-aged fashion thing that 
has no relevance today. Lord God, we want to be those that stand for you no matter what anybody else says. Lord, may you not find us in unbelief, but standing fast in faith. And I pray for every person here this morning, reaching out to you, Lord God, that you would meet them right where they're at. Lord God, I pray for your blessing. I pray that you would touch. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're here. Lord, as we sing this last song together, in your presence, we pray, Lord God, that all of the old would be washed away. All of the old stumbling all of the old dancing with many other things in our lives, that we would put away all the other dance partners and grab hold of the hands of God. We ask this in your glorious name. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook, at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.